By the way, Eidsmo is going to be the uh, keynote speaker at the Chafer Conference in March on uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. So we're going to have a couple of special speakers. We're going to have some of the uh, uh, <coughs> some of the usual suspects will be here, and then also Jeff Atticott, who is the founder and director of the uh, Center for Terrorism Law at St. Mary's Law School in San Antonio, uh, will be here. It's going to be here Monday, too. I'm picking you up at 930. Uh, I've been meaning to call you and tell you that all day. <laughs> so, um, yes, he is a uh, – in fact, I did his wedding in, uh, when he was uh, Judge Advocate General with uh, South Command in um, in – Miami, about, uh, I don't know when that was, 12 years ago, I think, 12 or 13 years ago. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a, a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we had this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be reminded that the truths that we study in your word have been specifically revealed to us, that each and every incident has been chosen by you to teach uh, key principles and procedures to us, and that we may go to your word to find uh, guidance and direction and insight into how to face and handle the day-to-day challenges of life. Father, now as we continue our study in obedience to authority, we pray that you would give us uh, insight into what we study and that we may come to understand how to apply it in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. This is indeed the Acts study. So someone who looks on the internet and says, oh, this is Acts. What are we doing in Daniel? Uh, In Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin had arrested Peter and John after they had healed the lame man at the temple and after Peter had preached his second sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. As a result of all of the commotion that that produced and the positive response to Peter's sermon, the Sanhedrin arrested John and Peter, kept them overnight, then had a hearing the next morning at the conclusion of which they uh, met to decide just what to do. They recognized that there were too many people who were witnesses of the event. They couldn't cover it up. They couldn't hide it. The only thing they could do was to try to intimidate 
Peter and John and to scare them into obedience and to order them to cease and desist from giving the gospel, from proclaiming anything in the name of Jesus and in healing anyone. The response from Peter and John was simple, and that was that should we obey man or should we obey God? The question clearly recognized that there there are spheres of authority. There are lower spheres of authority and higher spheres of authority, and there are times when authorities, legitimate authorities, conflict. And sometimes parents will tell children to do something that conflicts with what the Word of God says. Sometimes uh, a husband may tell his wife to do something that conflicts with what the Word of God says. Sometimes people just get in a situation where an authority, maybe a government official, a bureaucrat, tells them to do something that they don't want to do or they don't think it fits with their Christian life, but it may not be a direct uh, conflict and it may not directly contradict a specific statement of Scripture. And so we have to have wisdom to make decisions into when and when not to make something an issue. We have to know when to battle and when not to battle. And we need to know that there are, as I pointed out last time, there are ways to approach a battle that involve, um, so we say, a little subtlety and sophistication as opposed to uh, trying to bulldoze our way through some sort of frontal assault. And in the last lesson, I looked at Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, in fact, many things in Daniel focus on how believers are living within the context of a hostile pagan environment. This is part of, I explained last time, why Daniel it was within the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures because it, it taught how to live and gave principles and guidance in how to live in the diaspora. And so you had these four young men in chapter 1 who were being ordered to eat a diet for their health that was contradictory to the diet that God uh, commanded them in the Torah. And the way they handled it was to go to the person in authority in private That way they didn't make it an ego issue. They didn't make it an issue of confrontation with authority. And as soon as somebody thinks their ego, we'll see this tonight, as soon as somebody's ego gets put on the line and they get emotional, then objectivity goes out of the way and we lose a chance to try to appeal to them on a more rational uh, basis. Daniel... Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, the Hebrew names of the other three who were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not make an issue out of their renaming. See, there are a lot of things in life that we can make issues out of. Sometimes people say, well, what are we supposed to do if the government decides to do X? Well, does the Bible say prohibit you from doing non-X, whatever X may be? Well, not, no, there's no play. Well, then you have to go along with it. And this, this is the kind of thing I see people in corporations having to deal with a lot today. Uh, sometimes it's so subtle, and the, uh, the incursions against your faith are so incremental 
that many times people aren't aware of how they have been undermined by company policy or by uh, government edict. I think one of the problems we see in our bureaucrat-ridden federal and state governments today is that a lot of uh, a lot of agencies can in, uh, come up with policies that they begin to enforce that have these have the uh, weight of legislation, but it never went through any Congress. It never got voted on as law, and yet these arbitrary, um, uh, whether they're executive orders from governor or president or whether they are just uh, policy edicts from uh, some government agency, nevertheless, they put uh, believers in a position of conflict. For example, to give you one that's right here at home, is that there is a lady who is the uh, director of the uh, veterans uh, associate the, the veterans cemetery here in Houston, and for whatever reason, she made a policy edict uh, sometime last year where she prohibited the mention of the name of God, mention of the name of Jesus, the use of the Bible in any services that were going to be held at the Veterans Memorial Cemetery. She virtually shut down the chapel and turned it into some sort of administrative uh, facility, and it was no longer to be referred to as the chapel. Well, as word of this began to uh, leak out just before Memorial Day this last year, uh, it came to sort of a head in one sense because a pastor, a local pastor who had for a number of years given an an invocation at the Memorial Day service was told that he could not pray in the name of Jesus. Now that's an interesting thing for Christians because there are a lot of Christians who believe that when Jesus says, hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full, that that means that in praying you have to say at the end, like some sort of rubber stamp, a little magic formula in the name of Jesus. That's not what that means. It means that we come to God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. We we come on the basis of who and what Jesus is. That doesn't mean we have to say in the name of Jesus. Although I can understand why some people may make that an issue, and say that, um, uh, as far as they're concerned, that, that they're going to draw a line in the sand at that point and make that a, a point of battle. And I, I, that's up to each individual where they're going to uh, draw those, those uh, particular lines. Uh, we all know a pastor at one time who was, uh, <clears throat> many of you know and grew up under, who was asked to pray at, I think it was a Rice Owl football game. Am I not correct? back in the early 60s, and he was told not to pray in the name of Jesus. He said, okay, fine. So he prayed in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and the branch of Jesse, the child who was born in the manger, and on and on, and just strung together about 15 or 20 different titles that the Bible ascribes to Jesus and then closed out in prayer. See, that's the kind of uh, interesting sort of sophisticated sleight of hand or subtlety that, that people need to use 
when uh, confronting this kind of thing. Well, this thing in Houston with the Memorial Day is how are we going to handle that? Because this involves a lot of families, a lot of uh, veterans' families, a lot of veterans are, are, are believers, not just Christians, but a lot are, are, you have Jewish veterans, you have Mormon veterans, you have various religious uh, religions involved in veterans, and folks need to have the freedom according to, hmm, I think that's the First Amendment, isn't it? It says something about the uh, federal government not restricting or prohibiting the free exercise thereof uh, in relation to religion. And so this has was challenged, and I think appropriately so. Uh, there were a number of pastors and others who went out, and uh, they, they uh, met outside the parameters of the Veterans Cemetery peacefully and made their presence felt. They also contacted various uh, congressional representatives, one of whom is the uh, representative in whose district I live, and some of you do as well, and this church is in his district, and that's John Culberson, who also happens to be the chairman of the committee that has oversight over the uh, Veterans Administration, and he has taken this on as a personal challenge to end this woman's career. And if it doesn't happen through the courts, then he will see that something is passed in terms of the uh, budget uh, related to the uh, Veterans Administration that will defund her particular job. So it hasn't ended yet, but this is part of what has to happen. There are more and more people who do not want Christians to practice their Christianity or to indicate that they are Christians uh, anywhere outside of the front door of their house. But this is going to be just like smoking. Now, the agenda of the non-smokers, and I'm not promoting or advocating smoking. It's a bad habit. It's bad for your health and a number of other reasons. But in a free country, you have the freedom to be foolish and to do things that are bad for your health. And that can involve eating you know, chocolate sundaes every single day of your life. Uh, or potato chips or going to Burger King every day for lunch or McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever, as much as it can involve smoking a cigarette. But the agenda of the anti-smoking crowd was never to just have smoking and non-smoking sections in restaurants. The agenda was that to get uh, rid of smoking. And so there are areas in this country where there have been city ordinances passed where you can't smoke in your car if there's a child in the car. You cannot, uh, there are places, I believe there was a case up in Maryland uh, not too many years ago where somebody was a smoker living in one house and then there was another house about a 100 yards away and the people who lived in that house complained that they could smell the smoke from the smoker in the house uh, up the street and that that was, uh, that was uh, polluting their air. And so you also have subdivisions where you can't smoke outside even in your front yard. Eventually there will be legislation, and there is in some areas where if you're in an apartment complex, you can't smoke in your apartment if that smoke can filter into your neighbor's apartments. So, see, it wasn't just we're going to, first of all, segregate smokers. The ultimate goal was to isolate smokers and then to prohibit them from practicing their awful habit, even in the privacy of their own home. 
And that is the, always been the agenda of certain for, anti-religious forces, especially anti-Christian forces. So in a purely pagan environment, for example, if you are a Christian and you're working for Aramco or Bechtel or some other oil company and you're in Saudi Arabia or Libya or any number of other Muslim countries, how are you to carry out your job, your responsibility in a hostile pagan environment where you may be told to do certain things that you believe uh, conflict with your either your rights as an American or your freedom as a Christian or certain things that you believe you ought to do, but some may or may not be directly commanded or prohibited in Scripture. So Daniel gives us guidance in, in these things. And what we saw in the first chapter was this appeal in private to the authority to try an alternate plan, give it a 10-day test, and then to evaluate the circumstances. And in terms of the diet, the test was to see that those who ate uh, da- ate the king's portion, if they were healthier in appearance than Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And, of course, after 10 days, the four looked healthier and were uh, stronger and better than the others. And then at the end of that story, if you recall, when they graduated from their three-year um, re-education course and their training program to be upper echelon bureaucrats in the Chaldean Empire, they were the top four in the class. Now, that probably made all the native-born Chaldeans, all the ethnic Chaldeans, a little irritated as well as it might have irritated a few of their uh, a few of their Jewish brethren. But that was a case where the appeal worked and there were positive results. But we all know that there are times when we're in an authority situation and the person in authority is telling us to do something that we either A, don't believe is the right thing for us to do, or B, we know it directly contradicts Scripture. And it's great and it's wonderful to read a positive consequence story like we have in Daniel 1, but what happens if the person in authority fires us or the person in authority uh, has some other negative punishment uh, for us? And this is the example that we find in the third chapter of Daniel. This is a, a, an example when the appeal doesn't work. So turn with me there to, to Daniel chapter 3. And in this chapter, the uh, three men, Daniel isn't present, only the, the other three are present, and they are going to face a hostility uh, test. They are going to face ho- a hostility and antagonism test from certain people that uh, they work with, certain bureaucrats that they work with. They will face a form of anti-Semitism, in fact, and they will have to... Um, they will have to deal with that and figure out how to solve the problem. And they give us an example of what they, how to handle a situation when we're living in a pagan, hostile environment uh, in the midst of unjust laws that are mandating a disobedience to Scripture. So let's see the context. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. It's important to pay attention to that because the size of this image is such that it's 90 feet tall and nine feet uh, nine feet wide. 
That is a tremendous amount of gold, so there has to be a way of smelting the gold, and of uh, th- that requires a furnace. So this is why there is a furnace on site there, is so that they can heat and melt the gold for the construction of the of this uh, image. That's uh, sort of an odd ratio, ninety by nine. And it's very likely that there was a base or pedestal of some sort that was uh, might have been 30 uh, or 40 feet in height, and then that would raise the image of Nebuchadnezzar up high so everyone could see it, and then it would also that would then give the image itself a little uh, more uh, human ratio and perspective. And so when this has been built. Then Nebuchadnezzar, proud of what he has constructed here, proud of himself, we see increased arrogance down through the last couple of chapters, and he brings in all of the bureaucrats from all over the uh, Babylonian Empire, from uh, the lowest levels to the regional governors, uh, upper echelon administrators and magistrates, all the officials together for the dedication of the image that he has set up. And then he also has uh, brought his... The, the Babylon Symphony out so that uh, when they play, then that would be the signal for everyone to bow down and to worship the golden image. And this we see in verses 4 and 5. Then a herald cried aloud. Now, it's kind of interesting that in, the, in this section that refers to uh, is it written in Aramaic in the original and the Aramaic word for a herald here is karaz, which is a very similar to its cognate for the Greek word kerux, which is the word for a herald or a preacher. This was official court position where uh, the king would send out a messenger since they couldn't uh, tweet anybody and uh, get that mass communication going throughout the network. They couldn't use... Uh, uh, MySpace or Twitter or any of these other social networking things. They had to send the uh, Kairos out in order to announce this, and so everybody came together. And they're told that when they hear the orchestra play, then you shall fall down, the last half of verse 5, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And the furnace is right there. It's been set up and stoked, and it's ready to go because they've been using it in the construction of of this idol. Now, this is a command to worship this idol, which is in direct violation of the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that were the... uh, preface to the to the Mosaic law. Exodus 20 verses 2 through 5 reads, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So what we see in this situation is that the government is mandating a specific course of action that is specifically and directly prohibited by Scripture. Same kind of thing we saw in chapter 1. The government was mandating that they eat a specific diet and they... um, 
Uh, it was a diet that was prohibited by the Mosaic Law, and so there was a direct confrontation. It's very different from saying, okay, you're going to have a new name. There's nothing in Scripture that says you have to have a name that has got part of God's name in it. So they didn't make a battle out of that, which was the first principle we looked at the last time, is that you have to choose your battles and make sure that the point at which you're going to go to war is a direct contradiction of a mandate in the Scriptures. So uh, we're told in verse 7 that when the orchestra played, all the people heard, and they represent various nations and languages, and everybody fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It was a good day to be king. His ego was just, had just been blown up to its greatest level. He was getting all the strokes he needed. Everybody was telling him how beautiful his image was, how wonderful he was, what a great and magnificent king that he was. And so his ego is blown up and has been puffed up to about its fullest extent. However, we know it's coming in chapter four, so it has, a, a still has some, um, development uh, uh, left. And so uh, as he's thinking how and enjoying the moment and how pleased he is that everybody's worshiping him, we're told in verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Now it's I think the text is clear here for a reason. They didn't accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the accused Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It says he accused the Jews. That's the emphasis here. Here are probably these Chaldeans who have had their uh, feelings hurt ever since these four men have been elevated to such high positions within the government bureaucracy over probably many older men who were senior to them and they were passed over. And so this bred a lot of uh, jealousy and envy and uh, hatred. And the hatred in situations like this focuses on what is the easiest and most superficial reason to, to hate someone, and that was their ethnicity. And so it took this virile form of anti-Semitism, and they're focusing on the fact that it's these Jews. It's their fault. Let's get rid of them. So they have a perfect opportunity. So they come in all smarmy and unctuous, and they say, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made... And then they remind him of what his decree, decree is. He said, You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who... Here's the orchestra. I'm just going to summarize it rather than reading through all of the different uh, instruments. That everyone should fall down and worship the gold image, and that whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And so the king is probably nodding, yes, that's what I said. And then they say, now are certain Jews, notice the second time they're identifying them as Jews, there are certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is the central capital district in uh, the empire. And so they've been certainly elevated to ser- senior positions, even though they are of 
relative, their relative newcomers. There are these certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not be- paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you have set up. Now, let me read this with a little different emphasis here. This is how Nebuchadnezzar heard it. Uh, They said, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has probably been pleased and proud of the choice that he made in elevating these men to such positions of authority, and they have performed well for him. It was in the last chapter, the one we skipped over, where he had his dream of this image with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the torso of brass and the legs of bronze and, and uh, iron. And it was, it was of these four men that he got the answer to his dream. One of them, which was Daniel, was able to interpret the dream. So he's pleased with them. They, he knows who they are, and, and he is pleased that he has made a good decision, but now his decision is being challenged by these smarmy bureaucrats. And they've come in and they've blamed him for this. And there's not, you know what this is like. We've all been in a situation like this where we have made some decision and chosen some course of action, and then it sort of blows up on us and it, it turns against us and our ego gets involved and we get mad. We get upset, not so much because we have done, made a bad decision, but because now it reflects poorly on us, especially when we're right in the middle of getting all of this praise and adulation. Somebody comes in and pricks our little ego balloon, and the reaction is just anger. And that's what we see with with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. He's lost all objectivity. He's operating on pure emotion because his pride has been injured by his favorite uh, favorite bureaucrats, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they, they bring him forward, and he begins to interrogate them, see if it's true that they didn't um, that, that they didn't worship. They said, "Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up?" Now this tells us something about their integrity. They know what the consequence is, this, this fiery furnace. But they have the integrity to say, now remember, there's, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people out on the plain of Dura bowing down to worship. How would he know? It would be just their word against these other, other uh, uh, bureaucrats, against these Chaldeans. How would Nebuchadnezzar know whether or not they had actually bowed down? They could easily say, well, you know, we were out playing soccer the other day, and we got roughed up, and our knees got hurt, and it's just hard for us to kneel down right now. They could have come up with an excuse. They could have responded in, uh, in uh, with some sort of uh, cover-up or half-truth, but no, they're, they're honest with him, and they make the issue the Word of God. That's the issue. And so he says, now I'm going to give you a chance one more time I'll give the command, the orchestra will play, and give you the opportunity to bow down and worship. But if you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who 
is the God who will deliver you from my hands. And then we see their response. Now, this is a great attitude that we need to have. Whenever we go through any kind of adversity, God is either going to deliver us from it so that it is taken away, or he is going to strengthen us as we go through it so that we can endure endure it, or he is going to uh, take us home to be with him in the midst of it. One of those three options. And so they understand that, that they underst- and they understand that God is in control, but they don't have a prophet there to tell them what's going to happen. See, God is not speaking to the Israelites at this point in Babylon. There's no revelation. They're not going to have a heart flutter and say, well, I just know in my heart God's going to deliver me. They don't know that. They're not going to be like a lot of Christians and come up with some sort of uh, syrupy, sentimental, subjective uh, answer that God is go- God spoke to my heart and he's going to heal me. Because they know that, that God isn't speaking to them. They have no clue what God's sovereign will is in this moment. They do, however, know what God's prescriptive revealed will is. And that prescriptive revealed will is you will have no other gods before me. You will not bow down and worship an idol. They have all the revelation they need, just as we in the church age have all the revelation we need. We don't need to go out and... Uh, have meditate on our navel for a while and wait for God to make our heart flutter and know what the solution is. We do what the Word of God says to do. So the answer is 1, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we've no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to devour us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. We don't know what God's going to do. He can deliver us. He may not. But it really doesn't matter because we're going to do what God says to do, and we're going to put the problem, the situation, the conflict into God's hands. But we are going to do what God says to do, and we're willing to take the consequences. Well, this really angered Nebuchadnezzar, and so... He, uh, uh, the text is on, he, full of fury. The expression of his face changed. You ever see somebody when they get really mad, their face just blows up red, and they look like they're about to have a stroke. That's how Nebuchadnezzar was. And he commanded that they crank up the heat of the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, one of these types of, uh, of kilns would uh, probably reach somewhere close to 1,000 degrees centigrade and possibly even as high as 17 or 18 degrees centigrade. And uh, someone has pointed out that, that if he had just been rational and objective, he would have realized that by turning up the heat that hot, they're just going to vaporize as soon as they get in there and not feel any pain. What he should have done is just say, well, why don't you crank it down by one-seventh and then they will really suffer as they burn slowly. So you can see that anger drove out any sense of, of um, objectivity there. So they took the men, and I want you to pay attention to the detail here, that they took these men, and they took certain mighty men of valor. So he's about to sacrifice all of his best heroes. They went out and they got all of their um, 
Medal of Honor winners, and they had them as the escorts for these three uh, Jewish bureaucrats. And they were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments. So they're fully dressed in their formal wear, which is what they would have worn as formal bureaucrats to this type of event. And they're bound with all of their clothes on. And, you know, the the clothes would just burn up instantly and would really create an additional additional pain. And so they're bound in their clothes. And because the king's command was urgent, we're told in verse 22, uh, the furnace was cranked up and it was so hot that the escorts were killed by the heat as they were uh, marching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. But as they got to the door opening and they went in, it says the text says that they fell down in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste, spoke to his counselors, and, and the, the, what happens in the Hebrew here is all of a sudden you get a lot of participles, which indicates a lot of action. He is just, he's beside himself. He, he's, he's just excited. He's, he's looking inside, and instead of seeing three, he sees four, and he, he can't understand it. He's just running from person to person. Who's in there? What's, what's happened? How come they're not dead? Because he sees them walking around. They went into the fiery furnace. The, the, the cords that wrapped and bound them are burned, but their clothes aren't even singed. But yet the cords that bound them uh, were, were burned. And so he looks in there and says, wasn't it three men that we put in there? And they said, well, that's, that's right, king. And he said, look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, we're not going through Daniel, and we haven't covered everything, but in each of these chapters, there's more revelation given to Nebuchadnezzar, and I believe when he has his uh, seven years of uh, insanity that comes at the end of the next chapter, that when he recovers from that and he praises God, uh, that's very similar to praise that's given to God in the Psalms, and I believe he uh, does become a, a believer worshiping the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. So as that doesn't happen here, though. So he goes near the furnace, orders them to come out, and looks what he calls in verse 26, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So they came out from the fire, and then Nebuchadnezzar turned around and and took all the men um, that had conspired against them and had them thrown into the fiery furnace, and he had a a decree made that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there's no other God who can deliver like this. So he's recognizing at this point the sovereignty of God, and he penalizes those who are against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what's the principle for authority? It's make sure that the mandate directly contradicts a mandate of Scripture. Number two, make an appeal to the one in authority in private if you can. That's chapter one. But they couldn't do it in private here, and we see what happens. The ego enters in, and all of a sudden, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's authority and prestige has been made the issue, and he loses it. Uh, in terms of his uh, 
uh, in terms of his composure, and he becomes angry, and God, but God delivers him. Now, God delivered them, but that doesn't mean God's going to deliver us. Uh, there are many times when he does in different ways, not quite as uh, dramatically as he did here, but he does deliver in different ways. But we have to remember the principle of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13, that there has no testing taken you, but such as is common to man. It always seems like it's unusual to us, but the Scripture says these are part of the kinds of things that every human being goes through. But And that um, we are to in, endure... Uh, the scripture said, therefore, there is no temptation taken you, but such is a common demand. But God is faithful, who will make a way to escape that you can endure it. See, not escape so that you avoid it, but escape so that you can endure it. Sometimes he makes a way of escape so that you can avoid it, uh, but that usually isn't what happens. He strengthens us. Now, that's a situation of what happens when the one in authority is not responsive to our appeals. And there's another situation in Daniel chapter 5. This is, again, another episode that's familiar to most people. This is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Now, this happens many years later. Uh, by the time of Daniel chapter 5, we are at the end of the period of the, of the uh, Chaldean Empire. In fact, by this time, Daniel has become a, a, a very old man. If we look at the, at the data, we recognize that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians in approximately 30, uh, uh, excuse me, 538 B.C. Now, Daniel was taken as a captive from Babylon, I mean from Jerusalem, in 605. Well, 600 to 538 is 42 years. You just subtract 538 from 600. That's 42 years plus five years. I mean, 62 years, rather, plus five years is 67 years. Daniel was about 14 years of age when he was taken as a captive. That would mean he would be born around 619. So he was approximately 80 or 81 years of age by the time we come to this story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, I point that out because in almost every artwork that you see of Daniel in the lion's den, he is a younger man. Uh, he was an older man at this time, and he is and has been throughout several different administrations in the uh, Chaldean Empire, been in the upper echelons of leadership. He has been close to the leader at one time or another. And so this is in, excuse me, I said Daniel 5, I meant Daniel 6. Daniel chapter 6, this is after the uh, Babylonian, I mean, excuse me, after the Persians have taken over, so it's 538. So he would be 67 and another 14. He's 81 at least, maybe a little older. And please Darius, who is over the kingdom, the former kingdom of Babylon, uh, set over his kingdom. He reorganized it after the per, uh, Persians took over to 120 uh, satraps. That would be something similar to counties or maybe lo larger than that uh, to, be, and, uh, <clears throat> to be over the whole kingdom. And then he organized those 120 under three governors. Daniel is one of them. 
and is the highest of them. Daniel distinguished himself, we're told, in verse 3. And again, we have a case of jealousy, so that all of the other governors and satraps and regional leaders and bureaucrats are all upset because rather than having a Persian as the number two person in the kingdom, the number, the man with the most influence is once again uh, this Jew. So they conspire to find some way to bring a charge against Daniel. But Daniel was a man of integrity, and they couldn't find anything, but they recognized that he was faithful to his God and that every day at the same time, three times a day, he would pray towards Jerusalem because that's where the temple had been. And so they thought, well, we'll set up a, get the king to sign a law. We'll trick him into signing a law that will prohibit uh, anyone from praying to anyone else on pain of being cast into a den of lions. And so in verse 7, we're told of their uh, conspiracy and that they consulted together. They went to the king and said that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they had a sense of law that elevated it above the king so that even if the... uh, the law, once the law was put into effect, even the king could not change it for this period of time. Now, we're told in verse 10, now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he walked into the uh, throne room of the king and challenged the law. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. It says, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... So apparently he was aware of the conspiracy and the law that they were going to put into effect. Now, when he knew this, he went home, as was his daily routine, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He didn't change his routine at all. He didn't make an issue out of it. He doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. He doesn't try to bring attention to what he is doing. He doesn't challenge the king. He just does what he's going to do. Why? Daniel understands that the problem is in God's hands. And if God is going to use this to take Daniel home, then that's the way it's going to be. If the Lord doesn't use it that way, then Daniel is not going to be guilty of disobedience. He's not going to go home and say, well, I'm still going to pray, but I'm going to close my doors, pull the uh, curtains down, turn out the lights, and pray. He's going to do what he has always done the way he has always done it. And so these men are in hiding, verse 11, and they discover Daniel praying and making supplication to his God. So they go to the king, and they tattle on him. And because this is their whole uh, objective is to catch Daniel violating the law. And they bring the point home that, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter, there is nothing that, that uh, the king can do. So... They bring the charge against the king, and when the king hears it, in verse 14, he's greatly displeased with himself. That's kind of a wimpy little way of expressing it. Uh, The sense here is that he went into a blue funk. He went into a deep depression. 
He is, Daniel, it's his favorite person. This would be like taking, your, you've just made a decree that your best friend, if they do something, they're going to be thrown into a, a den of lions, and now it happens. And so he is, he, he can't do anything about it. So the men uh, drive it home that uh, there's nothing he can do about it, verse 15. So the king gives the command, and they bring Daniel in, and listen to the king. Darius talks to Daniel. This is the great witness that Daniel is in that empire. It hasn't been that long. He said, Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Darius has almost as much faith probably as Daniel does. He's confident that God will deliver him. And so they take him to the uh, den of lions, uh, stones brought, laid across the mouth of the den. This would have been uh, some sort of pit area where um, uh, the, Daniel's put in there. The king seals it, all of the uh, formalities to make sure that uh, there's no way that Daniel can escape. And then the king went back to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. It's an interesting word translated different ways. Basically, he spends the night without his normal evening entertainment, whatever that would have consisted of. Uh, No musicians are brought, no dancing, no um, none of his wives or concubines, and he can't sleep. He's tossing and turning, and he doesn't even have any Ambien, and he certainly can't take a shot of scotch to help him go to sleep. Just wanted to see if anybody's still awake. All night he tosses and turns, and then early the next morning... He gets up, runs to the lion's den. This shows something. He's not sure, but he's pretty sure. I mean, if he wasn't pretty sure, he wouldn't have run to the lion's den to see if Daniel was still alive. So he has confidence, but it's it's a weak confidence. But he still fairly, he does expect Daniel to be there. And he cries out to Daniel, saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you? From the lions, and Daniel replied, "O king, live forever! My God sent His angels, shut the lions' mouths, so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before Him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you." And so the king uh, rejoiced, commanded that they take Daniel out of the lions' den, and uh, <clears throat> no, no harm was found. God shut the mouths of the lions. God can handle any problem if He can shut the mouths of the lions, if He can keep those three uh, Jewish lads from being burned in the fire, then he can solve any problem you and I have. We just have to trust him. That doesn't mean that he's obligated to always solve the problem in that kind of manner, but we have to trust him. And so the king then commands for those who are involved in the conspiracy, uh, verse 24, and their children and their wives all to be thrown into the lions. And he basically is going to wipe them and their heritage off the planet. And the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. So as, as they're entering, they get devoured by the lions, whereas with Daniel, Daniel was able to enter, and it was all uh, passive. And then Darius honored God with the proclamation to, in verses 25 and 26. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and steadfast forever his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion will endure to the end. He delivers 
and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And I think Darius was also a believer and believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Daniel, and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so this gives us another great example, and that is that when there is the conflict between the mandate of God and the mandate of man, then we always obey the mandate of God. But we have to recognize that there are things that go on behind the scenes in terms of the spiritual issues, and we never know how our stand for God's word is going to be used to turn a situation. And so when we seek to solve the problem through other human viewpoint means, then we can just make the situation much worse. If we look at the New Testament, we also see an example of a man who is innocent before the law, and yet he is condemned unjustly in trials that were illegal, and he is crucified on the cross. Not once did Jesus say, you're breaking the law, don't you know that? Not once does he uh, challenge anything that they are doing. That doesn't mean that we don't. Paul is another example. Later, he's brought and arrested, and he's about to be whipped, as we'll see in our study in, in, uh, later on in Acts. And he says, you're really not going to whip a Roman citizen, are you? And immediately the centurion stopped and, and uh, interrogated him, found out he was indeed a Roman citizen, and it scared the centurion to death because this would have been a, a capital crime for the centurion to have whipped a, a Roman. So it doesn't mean that there aren't, that you don't appeal, but you appeal within the structure of, of the law, and then when we are become the victims of injustice, then we handle it on the basis of God's word. We do what is right, and we take the consequences, but you don't do a right thing in a wrong way because a right thing in a wrong way is never going to be honored or blessed by God. So these are the principles that we see, and this is exactly what Paul, Peter and John say in Acts chapter 4. We're going to obey God rather than man. So next time, we'll come back after finishing this little side series on obedience to authority, and we'll see what happens when they are released. And what happens when they are released is that they go back and have a prayer meeting with the other believers, and we're going to see some fascinating things about prayer. Let me just wrap up what happens at the end of chapter 4. When Peter and John answered, in verse 19, when Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, here was the response from the Sanhedrin. They just, they're, they're basically flummoxed. And so they get emotional. They get angry and they threaten them further. They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Everybody knew what had happened, and there was no way they could even punish them or beat them or whip them or any other level of uh, punishment at this particular time 
because everything was out in the open. Verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So everybody knew it. So they are released. Then when they get back to the other believers, starting in verse 23, and report, they will have a true prayer meeting and pray session, and we'll come back and look at the significance of their prayer there when we uh, resume in a couple of weeks. Next week there will be Bible class on Tuesday night, although I will be gone. And there will not be Bible class on Thursday night, but there will be Bible class and prayer meeting Tuesday night next week, but there will not be Bible class on Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you are in control. And even when things seem to be out of control, nevertheless, you are in control. And that our responsibility is to obey you, and your responsibility is to take care of us, uh, no matter how, you, uh, in terms of your plan for us, whether that involves delivering us from the circumstances or delivering us through the circumstances. Father, we need to understand that the issue underlying obedience is trust. Trusting in you, believing your word, living on the basis of your promise. And it is your word that gives us guidance and strength and hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.